guys can grab a seat. It's good to be with you guys. You're newer visiting. My name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor. Um, I've been out for a, little, for a couple weeks. I'm so, so happy to be back with you. And also, let me go and wish Happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room. Um, we are so, so thankful for you. And I, I want you to know if you have, if you had a good father in your life, please make it a point to honor him today, to love him today, to call him today. Um, and for those of you in this room that were Father's Day, honestly, it brings up more pain because maybe you've lost your father or maybe um, your father wasn't a very good father. Let today be a reminder of the permanence and the goodness of the heavenly father that you have. Um, let it be a reminder that even in the most broken moments, even the best father is not as good as the one we have in God. And so Father's Day is a mixture, like Mother's Day, like every day that we have a celebration, it's always a mixture of a lot of things. But I'm going to wish happy Father's Day to you in the room. We're thankful for you. Um, let's go ahead and get into the text. If you have a Bible, go look at uh, Luke 18. Luke 18, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. But always, I think it's good to bring text with you, even if it's on your phone, just to look at it for yourself. Because we're studying this together, not just I'm studying it, we're studying it together. So today, we're beginning a three-week series called Set Apart. We're taking a break from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll get into it in the next, in the next couple of weeks. We're taking, and actually, all of our different congregations, so if you're new and you're like, different congregations, we, we have multiple congregations around the city, the so South and West and North and St. John's. Every congregation in our, in our church is actually taking, is doing different sermon series based on their context, their people, and what God's put on their heart to teach. And what we're gonna do is downtown is we're gonna look at what does it mean to be God's people? Like, what does it mean to be set apart for God with his people? Because if you're a Christian, and most of you are, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, one, I'm really glad that you're here, but if you're not a Christian and you become a Christian, what happens is not just that you change your religious affiliation. When you become someone who believes in Jesus, you have then been set apart by God for him. That's who you are now. And not just set apart individually, but set apart amongst the people. You now belong to this people that you'll belong to forever. That's what it means to belong to the church. With all of her issues, with all of the church's warts and sins, you'll still belong to God's people forever. That's what it means to be a Christian. Over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at, well, to be part of the people of God, to be set apart by him, is to do things like worship. And the next week is to do things like seeking justice. And we get to that, it's working faithfully in the vocation God has called you to. But we're going to begin with worship. And in particular, it's more of a, what should be, as a set-apart people, what should our posture be towards God? And I want to show you, your posture towards God, when it comes to you and your sins, should be humility and humble worship, not self-righteousness. So we live, you and I live, in such an interesting time, an interesting context, and it's easy, in whatever context you're in, it's easy to think that you, that your generation is the worst and it's, or the generation behind you, especially if they're younger than you, you always think they're the worst. Like whoever's younger than you, you think you never worked hard, I worked hard, you don't know what it's like to not have the internet. Like you, you, you make up things to say, here's how we're better than you. But in our day, it's really fascinating because we have so much more information than anyone else in all of history. Like we have so much more information and what information brings is honestly, you and I have more knowledge of everyone's dysfunctions and the world's dysfunctions way more than anyone else in history. 
Like 100 years ago, most people would not have known bad news outside of their town. But now you, because of what's in your pocket, in your phone, you can see the most awful things all over the world all the time, most awful things in our country all the time. And so what happens, and what's happened in our context, which the last 10, 15 years, is as we've gotten more information about how dysfunctional everybody is, that is produced, and you feel it, this outrage culture. We live in an outrage culture, especially in our media. And what's so fascinating about the outrage culture that we live in, it cuts across every distinction. It's, the outrage culture is not limited to one group of people. It cuts across every ideology, every political party, every social leaning, every ethnicity. Everyone just in our context seems to be angry, right? They're either angry about something, just getting over, over being angry about something, or about to be angry about something. Like that's kind of where we are. And what's even more fascinating, not only are we able to be angry now because we have more information, now we wear it as a badge of honor. Everyone look how angry I am. I'm more angry than you. Look at the way I use my anger. Look at my post. And we wear it as a badge of honor. And we almost think that everyone, if I'm outraged and you're not, something's wrong with you. And what's interesting is this outrage, it's sometimes serious things. Other times it's really, tri- it's all of them, it's, it's trivial things. I found out this week that uh, the show Game of Thrones, listen, never seen an episode before in my entire life. I think it's about wizards or dragons or something. Dragon wizards, I think is what it is about. Um, there's dragons who are wizards. That's what it is. And um, sorry, if you're a Game of Thrones, you're like, how dare you? I've never watched it. So, um, but I'm getting ready to my point. So there was a petition 500,000 people were so outraged. They signed a petition for HBO to remake the entire eighth season. They were so disappointed in how this show that's not real was made. The dragon wizards are not real. And they were so upset they want them to remake the show. They're outraged. And so you'll see people get outraged and, and you're thinking, that's really trivial. And it is. But also there are things that are happening in our society that aren't as trivial, right? There are things that happen in our society that are actually aren't funny, they're awful. And there's things that honestly, when you see them and you hear them, you should feel some level of outrage or heartbrokenness over it. Because when you see so much evil in the world, listen, it's not noble to grow comfortable with it as a Christian. It's not godly to say, that's just the way things are and move on. It's good to be sensitive to that in the world. But then here's my concern. My concern for us is that with all the sin around us and all the commenting on sin around us, that it is feeding our propensity to be self-righteous. It's feeding your propensity, my propensity, to be self-righteous. See, we, we all have those things that just make your blood boil. And it's not everything. There, there are certain, I mean, there's things that you know that are wrong and you see, it go, oh, that's awful, I hate that. But it doesn't affect you viscerally. There are those certain things, though, when you see them, when you hear them, and they're wrong, they affect you viscerally. Those things you keep thinking about, those things that make you sick to your stomach, and you think to yourself, you've, you've thought this or said it, how could anyone ever do that? I can't believe someone would do that. And the sins in our society that tend to really affect you usually are based on your personality, your story, your ethnicity, the industry that you work in, right? Based on who you are as a person, there are certain things that will affect you more. Like for me, as a pastor, 
I know for the pastors at this church, when we see a pastor in this country do something idiotic or fail, we feel it in a, probably a different way than you do. Because we feel it and we're thinking, dude, you're making us look terrible right now. We see it and we're thinking, how could you do that because we're in a similar vocation as them? And so I feel it in a unique way. There's things you feel in a unique way that I don't feel. And I'm not saying you shouldn't. But here's the danger. Here's what I'm concerned for you and honestly for the American church as a whole. I'm concerned that we are more outraged and heartbroken over the sins of other people and society than our own. That we're more heartbroken over theirs because we spend so much time talking and worrying and venting and fighting the sins of others and I wonder if we're as, di- as vigilant with our own. I wonder if we're as heartbroken over our own issues. Listen, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for justice. We're gonna talk about that next week. We absolutely should. So don't hear that as saying, don't speak out. But what I am saying is we can get every single one of those values correct in our culture, but if we're not heartbroken for our own sin and beg God for mercy for our own sin, you will miss God. You'll miss him. You'll miss his eternal kingdom. You'll miss his life that he promised if we only invoke Jesus' name for them and not for me. And so when it comes to being a people set apart, we have to be set apart in how we view ourselves, how we view the sins of other people and how it relates to us. I want to show you a text in Luke 18 where Jesus is going to talk about this. And I want you to know, Jesus, when you read, if you've read the Gospels before and you've taken them seriously before, you have to understand, Jesus offends everybody. He offends everybody. Everyone's like, I like this Jesus. He's like, what about this? Like, I don't like that about you very much. Every ethnic group, every political party, every social leaning, every agenda, at some point he's gonna show you, no, no, I'm king, you're not. I'm from heaven, so I'm going to, at some level, critique every worldview other than the kingdom of heaven. And I wanna show you how he's gonna teach us how, does the, how do the people of God who've been set apart, how should we relate to God in light of the sins of other people? And he's gonna show us we are called to be humble, not self-righteous. So look at Luke 18, nine through 14. This is what Jesus said. He, talking about Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I'm gonna break this down verse by verse. Look at verse nine. He says, here's the context of his teaching. He says, he, 
Luke's telling us, he, Jesus, also told this parable, he's telling this parable, to, it's to somebody, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So he's speaking to people who he's saying, you, I'm talking to you, you are trusting in yourself that you're righteous. Now what's fascinating, he tells, he's talking to these people, but everyone can hear it. He's talking to them, but everybody can hear it because I think Jesus knows that your tendency and my tendency is to trust in ourselves for our righteousness. Your disposition is to, now, and when it says righteous, don't assume, oh, I think I'm perfect. None of you in this room think you're perfect. I doubt it. If you do think you're perfect, let's talk afterwards. I'll have 10 seconds, I'll find something, okay? But you don't think you're perfect. None of you would be that naive to say that. But what, by righteous, what it means is, but I could stand before God on my own. I'm not perfect, I need a little help, I could use a little advice from him, but I don't really need anything else other than that, I'm pretty good. I could stand before him based on me. Jesus knows that's all of our tendency when it comes to how we relate to God. We tend to trust in ourselves that we're righteous. Not perfect, but righteous enough to stand before God on our own. And I want you to, to notice something in verse nine. I want you to notice the connection between trusting in your own righteousness and treating others with contempt. Do you see that? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and what did that prompt in them? And treated others with contempt. So you may not be able to locate, am I the person who thinks they're righteous? You may not be able to see that. But you can always see it when you treat others with contempt. It's a fruit of self-righteousness is to treat other people poorly because normally you justify it with secretly, I think I'm a little bit better than them. So that's the context. He's teaching us and saying, hey, all of our tendency here is to come before God and think at the end of the day, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. This is what Jesus says, verse 10. Here's the parable he tells to address that situation in us. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. So when he says parable, there's two guys, they're gonna represent two different types of people. And, and where's the context where they're going? They're going into the temple to pray. So that's where God, and that's right, they should do that. Because at that point in time, God had said, if you wanna worship me, you come to where I am. You come to the temple. So these two men, they're going to meet with God. So it's not a horizontal, I mean, a, a, a horizontal sort of dynamic of how I relate to other people. It's a context is you're going to interact with God in particular. You're going to the temple to pray. So it says one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he says the Pharisee, here's who that person is. The Pharisee for them is the moral hero that they look up to. See Pharisees were, they were one of the most strict sects of Judaism. They believed in the Bible like us. They wanted to follow it just like us, even more stringent than any of us in this room try to follow the scriptures. And so a lot of us, if you grow up in church, you hear Pharisee and you immediately think, bad guy. You hear Sadducee, you're like, ugh, can't handle him. Right, like you, you just know, if you've been in church, religious leaders are bad, okay? Which I'm like, I'm one of the leaders here. But like you, you, you just know that, right, in the scriptures. And I want you to know though, when the people there are hearing Pharisee, they don't think villain, they think hero. They are the people who are the most morally outstanding people among them. When they hear Pharisee, they hear, oh, that's the most righteous person. They hear Pharisee, they hear the person who is faithful to attend church, the person who's most zealous in their faith and they share it all the time. They're thinking, oh, that's the really spiritual person. So when he says Pharisee, he's setting it up to say, the one you think's the hero. Then he says, tax collector. He's the villain. He's the villain. 
tax collectors for them, they were some of the most despised people among the Jewish people. Because tax collectors, when the conquering Roman armies had come in to oppress their people, they were the people who sided with Rome over their own people. They said, I'll be the middleman, I'll take taxes, I'll be part of the oppressors, the people who I know, who I know personally. And tax collectors were notorious for taking more taxes than they were supposed to so they could get rich. So when they hear tax collector, they're not sympathetic, like, well, they are pretty complicated. They don't think that. Do you know about his childhood and how his background? Like, they, they don't think that. They hear tax collector and they think scoundrel. The person who sold us out to our oppressors. So he's setting it up. They're going to the temple, the hero and the villain. Look at verse 11. So he says, he describes their moral hero, the Pharisee. He says, the Pharisee, now look at how Jesus describes him. It says, standing by himself. He goes to the temple, he's front and center all by himself. Why? He's confident. He doesn't come to worship like, I don't know. He's like, no, I, I know what to do. He's got his hands up. He knows what to do. He's confident in who he is before God. And look what he does. He says, standing by himself, distinguished from everybody else, prayed thus God. He's not going in trying to just, trying to disappear spiritually. It looks like he's saying to God, right? He's praying. He seems very spiritual. He says, God, and look what he says to God. God, I thank you. He's grateful. He prays before his meals, right? God, I thank you. I'm being grateful. I'm starting with gratitude here, God. I thank you. And then what does he say? He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. Now, before you go, man, he is so judgmental. He is, okay? But before you, you typecast him and make him the bad guy immediately in your mind, notice what he's saying, though. He's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people. And none of the things he lists are like up for debate. None of the things he lists are like, well, that could be good, that could be bad. I mean, extortion, I mean, there's some situations where it could be a good thing. Like there's no situation where that's okay, right? And so he, he at least is praying, God, thank you that I'm not like extortioners. Would you want him to be one? You're like, don't be so judgmental, go extort somebody. Like, like would you want him to be one? You're like, ah. Adultery, have you tried it? Like, like, would you want him to do these things, what I'm saying? He's being judgmental, but would you want him to be what he's describing? Well, absolutely not. He's praying his things he shouldn't be doing anyway. And then he goes on to say, not only am I morally righteous, but I'm also spiritually. I fast twice a week. I'm hungry after God. I fast, I pray, I'm hungry for him. And his last thing he says, and I give tithes, of all that I get, he's not even stingy. He's not some religious person who doesn't care for the poor. He gives to the temple. He gives to the church. That's the hero. No one who heard that would go, that guy's the worst. All generous and stuff and faithful to his spouse. Ugh. They wouldn't have thought that. They would have said, yeah, that sounds right. But look at the 13, the tax collector. It says, but the tax collector... Notice how Jesus describes him, standing far off. So he comes in, he's not up, distinguished, he's far away. Why? He's not confident. He's not secure, just on his own. And it says, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. 
he can't even look at God. Now notice, it doesn't say he can't look at other people. That's not his issue. He can't look up towards heaven as a symbol of looking to God. He can't even look at him because he knows I have wronged him. I'm under no illusion that I can stand by myself on my own, in my own works, confident that God could hear me. And then what does he do? It says, he beat his breast. What that means, he's beating his chest, looking down. He's saying, not only do I know I have sin intellectually, but it's deeper than that. It's not just that he heard a sermon or somebody told him, like, I have sin, so God, I have sin. You know I have sin, so would you forgive me? He's beating his chest because he feels it viscerally. Right, so you know that feeling. You know the, dis- the, the difference between I know that I've done something wrong and I feel that I've done something wrong. I feel the shame of it, I feel the guilt of it. I'm not just saying I know I'm supposed to be wrong, I feel how wrong I am, but he goes to God still. He's looking down, he's beating his chest, and he still speaks to God. He says, God, be merciful to me. He goes to God and he says, be merciful, because what he's recognizing is, I don't have anything to give to you that can purchase what I need. I I don't have enough actions to say, well, God, look at what I've done. This is why you should give mercy to me. He's saying, I can't purchase something so valuable. I don't have enough for you to warrant you giving such a gift to me. He's saying, God, just be merciful based on your own mercy, not on me. And he says, merciful to me, a sinner. This is important. He doesn't explain away his sin with his circumstances. Now listen, your circumstances help explain your sin, but your circumstances don't excuse your sin. They really do help give context to why that and why were you so scared and what was going on and who had hurt. All those things are really important. Don't downplay those things. But when it comes to you and God, at the end of the day, he's saying, God, I know I have circumstances. I know it wasn't as simple that I just chose to be a tax collector based on just, I just hated other people. But at the end of the day, it's on me. Sin didn't just happen to me. I went after it on my own. Hero, villain. Look at what Jesus says, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Think about that. This man, the tax collector, the one who's not moral, He's not, he's not exemplified in the community. He's not honored or praised. And he's the one who goes home. He doesn't just stay at the temple and stay really spiritual. He can go home, go back to his life, and Jesus says, justified. What that word means is he has a confident standing with God that no one else can take away. He can go home knowing God's love is on me. God's relationship is with me. What does it say about the other one, though? It doesn't just say the tax collector went home justified and the other was kind of messy and didn't quite get it, but kind of did. He says, rather than the other. The so-called hero in the story, he saw sinners around him and he couldn't see himself in them. He saw the sins of other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors, and he could not see how he was similar to them. So he went home 
damned before God. Because Jesus is saying humility before God begs for mercy for me first and foremost. Exaltation and arrogance before God focuses on the sin in other people and the right living in me. The sovereign point of this story Jesus is making to all of us is that when it comes to God, not other people, when it comes to God and your sin against him, you are the villain in the story. I'm the villain in the story. Listen, all of us, the thing about being human is all of us have been victims of other people's sins. So don't hear me say that. Everyone in here has been the victim of other people's sin. But when it comes to your relationship with God, I'm the one who rejected him. I'm the one who rebelled. I'm the one who has no moral standing. And the fact that Jesus died for everyone, the fact that Jesus is the only way back to God for everyone, listen, no matter your moral accomplishments, no matter how much our society may esteem how great you are, the way back for everybody's the same. So the way back, let's just use a person who we would all recognize as a morally superior person who, as far as I can tell, did not believe in Jesus before they died. Take someone like Gandhi and take a murderer. The fact that Jesus died is the only way back to God means the way back to God is the same for both of them. There's not special ways back if you're morally superior. Listen, the sins are different. The consequences of the sins in this world are different. But listen, the nature of the payment of what it costs for you to go back to God is the same. It's the same. Jesus levels the playing field. The way back for you and the way back for me and the person you think is the worst human being you could imagine, the way back for all of us is the same. It tells you something about the nature of sin. Now listen, it's not, the point here, listen, is not that the Pharisee was worse than the tax collector. That's not the point. The point is that both of them needed mercy the same. That's the point. It's not saying the Pharisee should have done all those awful things. It's not the point. The point is, he needed mercy as much as the tax collector. And here's where the rub is in our culture. The outrage culture is training you to be a Pharisee. It's trained, it's, listen, if you don't think our culture is discipling you and to be somebody, it is. It's training me to be a Pharisee and say, yeah, but look how bad they are. It's training me to be outraged over them and take it easy on me. Have you noticed that? Mercy for me, justice for them. Grace for my stuff, they should be punished. You notice that in all of us? What Jesus is saying, he's saying, no, our our posture as a people should be like the tax collector. Now listen, maybe you haven't done the thing that you're talking about. Maybe the thing you're you're thinking of even right now is atrocious and is sinful and maybe it's a manifestation of sin that you haven't experienced before. But listen, when you get before God, what if you just focus on their issues, you'll find yourself growing cold towards him. Why? Because you don't think you need mercy as bad as they do. You'll begin to let the sins of others blind you to your own sins before God. Now, hear me really clearly because this does not mean we don't speak out. 
This does not mean we're not broken and outraged over things in our culture. It just means when we see sin so clearly in them, we need to remember that that sin, maybe not the same manifestation, but that seeds of that sin also reside in us. So let me give you a really, really stark example of how I had to process this in my life. And this is a really intense example because I wanna show you the starkness of it. But do you remember about two years ago now, the KKK rally that happened in Charlottesville two years ago? It was all over CNN, on the news. I mean, it was, it was awful. And it was devastating and it was just made, hopefully all of us, so angry to be reminded, to be confronted with the fact of the historic deep, deep roots of racism in our country and a good reminder, especially for those of us who are white in this room, a good reminder that it's still very prevailing in our culture too. It's not dead and gone. And it was a good reminder. That's why it was so stark for so many of us to be reminded. And and I wanted to say this. I know in this room, as I'm even talking about this, I know for men and women of color in this room, I know you experienced that way differently than I did. Because I haven't been the victim of racism. So when I see that, like most white people in the room, when I see that, it's, it's an awful thing, but it feels like a historic event, not a personal offense to me. So let me just say, as I even talk about how I responded to it, do not hear me, especially men and women of color, that you should respond the same way I did because I've never been a victim of racism, so I, don't, I didn't experience the way that you did. So don't hear me saying this is how you should respond. I'm saying this is what God pressed on me as I was watching it. Because as I was watching it two years ago, one of the things that shocked me was how young these white men were. For some reason, in, in my brain, I should, have, I should have way better theology than this, because I know sinfulness is not just in older people or something, but in my brain, when I saw older white men, it made sense. But then I saw young white guys who looked just like me, and it was unnerving. I'm looking at this, I'm like, we're probably the same age. He, he looks just like me, and, and what, do I, what, what do I find myself doing as a white man doing? disassociating myself and going, look how awful they are. That's a bad white person. I'm a good white person. And I can feel myself demonizing these people and seeing no, and I'm being the Pharisee and saying, that's awful. I can't see myself in that at all. But I remember when I was watching, I could feel the self-righteousness in me just getting fed. And I had this moment where I realized, if not for God's mercy... I'd be no different. Not for God's grace. I, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I said some things as a high schooler that, about racism that I really regret. Now I'm going to talk to Jesus about it. I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. I know where I grew up. If not for God's mercy, I'd be no different. Because what is racism? It's self-worship. At the base level, racism is saying, my image is superior, not God's image, my image. And I'm looking at them and going, though my self-love has not manifested to that degree, do I really wanna say I haven't loved myself over other people? Have I ever been selfish? Have I ever chosen my own image over the image of other people? And I could, the spirit is prompting in me yeah, I may not be where they're, they're at, as awful and that demonic sort of thing that they're in, but the same seeds of that tree still exist in me. 
Sin may manifest differently, but the seeds are the same. Now listen, being aware of that and having that moment for me doesn't mean it justifies being quiet about racism. Doesn't mean it justifies being quiet about injustice or evil in our culture. But you know what it does? It takes that outrage that I was feeling and it brings it under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what he'll do is he'll bring clarity to where my outrage is. He'll sort through it and say, no, this is demonic, this is wrong, this is evil. But he'll also add heartbreak to it. He'll also add this word called lament to it. And what I found myself doing as I was praying through this was lamenting that these young white men like me, they're image bearers of God just like me, just like you. And lamenting the fact that they are so blind and deceived by Satan to think what they think, they don't see God clearly. Because when you know your sin and you know the mercy of God that you need, listen, you'll still be bold about sin in our culture, but I think you'll just do it with more tears. I think you'll just do it with more tears because you'll see as angry as I am, I'm almost more sad that things have gotten to where they are. Jesus' point is don't let the sins of others blind you to your need for mercy with God. Luke 18, nine, why he tell the parable? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee the other a tax collector. So this is my, my question to you. Like, do some introspection. What is your posture right now with God? Not what have you done, good or bad. Right now, what's your posture towards him? What's your sense towards him? What's your feeling towards him? Is it desperate? Is it humble? Is it God, give me mercy? Or is it proud? Is it, I need some help, but I'm good. Is it apathetic? Where are you at? And I know for me, I was thinking this week, where, where am I at with God? I've noticed in me that if I'm not walking in the spirit, I'm not like being faithful to be to God. I notice myself, if you've been a Christian, you'll, you'll understand this, oscillating back, back and forth from being self-assured and self-pity. I just find myself, if you've been a Christian, you know this feeling of just kind of go back and forth of self-assured where I'm like, I feel pretty good. I know I'm not perfect, but God loves me and I feel good about it and yeah, it's probably fine. But I don't find myself in those moments going, God, give me mercy. I feel pretty good. And then I fail in ways I didn't want to fail, didn't think I would fail. And then I have self-pity and think I'm the worst. How could God love me if I hate me? You ever been there? How could God love me if I'm gonna fail in these ways again and again and again? I find myself oscillating back and forth between the two. But Jesus' point, hear me, his point is that it's spiritually scarier to be self-assured. It's spiritually scarier to be self-assured. Why? Because when you're self-assured and you're confident in yourself, all by yourself, you don't know you need mercy. If you don't think you're that bad, are you gonna cry out for mercy? Probably not. Self-assured people struggle with Jesus when he says, cry out for mercy. They're like, for what? For what? See, though self-pitying is not any better, it, you at least know you need help. When you're self-despairing, you at least know, you may not believe God wants to forgive you, but you at least know, know you need it. And what I love about God 
is how much confidence a tax collector, someone who knows how broken they are, someone who hates self, who can't even look at God, how confident you can be when you ask God for mercy. Luke 18, 14, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He went home justified. He could be confident in that. I started this, this new routine with my kids. We're just about every single night, right before they go to bed, me and Lauren do this thing. We'll ask all three of our kids, what's something you wanna thank God for and what's something you, wanna say, you need to say sorry for? Thank God for something, say sorry for something. Because we're like, you need to say sorry for something, for sure. Um, hint, hint. Um, and, if, and by the way, if you're here and you don't have kids, you're thinking, wow, that sounds so spiritual. Most time it's really not. Uh, most time what they thank God for are like butts and stuff. Like it's just like, okay, Henry, thank God for something sincere, please. And it just says nonsense. Like last night, he said, thank you for the moon. I was like, man, eh, the moon's pretty good. Like, like I'll take it. Um, I'll take moon. So if you're here, you're like, wow, he's so spiritual. Eh. So, but here's what's funny with my kids. When it comes to thankfulness and saying sorry, I have never... Honestly, when, when my kids see something that they're thankful for, and even if it's like a color or a person, they're just like, I'm thankful for pink. I'm like, Eliza, pink's awesome. Like, let's thank God for that. When they thank God for something, I've never had to teach them to be confident about it. They're just like, God, thank you for this. Like, thank you. But even as a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old, you know what's fascinating? All of them, they're all different personality types, and they have in different genders. And no matter what, when they have to say sorry, what do they do? They get sheepish. They get sheepish when they have to say sorry for something. I've never had any of them go, you know what? I say sorry for this thing confidently, boldly. Most time they're like, I say sorry for him, my brother. Like they, they, they kind of mumble it. They don't really want to say, it's, the best thing about kids is they don't have the self-protective mechanisms that I do so to kind of show you what you really feel, right? That's why there's such a great mirror for you to go, oh, that's what I'm like. I just don't know how to hide it a lot better. And they get so sheepish and I can completely relate to that feeling. And so I do this thing with them because I want to teach them you don't have to be sheepish when you come to God asking him for mercy. So what they'll do is when they finally just admit whatever it is, like I hit my brother or I was mad at daddy or, or whatever it was, they'll say, God, I'm sorry for this. Will you forgive me? I've made it this pattern where they say that and I go, do you know what he said? Did you hear him? And the first time that I did it, I was like, hear what crazy person? Like she was so like, uh, dad's hearing voices kind of thing. I said, did you hear what he said? He said, yes. He said, yes. He said, I forgive you. I love you. Did you hear him? She goes, I know I didn't hear him. I go, do you know how I heard him? Now she knows the answer. She told me last night. But at the beginning, she didn't know the answer. And I said, you know how I heard him? Because when Jesus died on the cross, that was his shout saying, I'll always say yes to request for mercy. When he rose from the dead, that was the loudest shout he could give to you, that every time you ask for mercy, you go home justified. There's no doubt, there's no suspense. I wonder what he'll say. Why are you sheepish? Because you don't hear how loud he shouted it already. The death and resurrection of Jesus is this loud shout to broken people, just cry out and I'll say yes every time. I'll say yes every single time. See, the joy of the Christian life the joy of the Christian life is knowing the love and mercy of God. You're not made to be self-righteous. You can't handle it. You're not that good. And God is way more perfect and holy than that. But listen, nor are you made to constantly mope and self-loathe and constantly wonder, where am I at with God every time you fail? 
God's more merciful and loving than that. No, through Jesus, listen, we're not unfazed by our sin. We're, we're not taking our sin casually or not thinking much about it. We're taking it serious. But listen, we are not defined by it. We're not defined by it. Through Jesus, we have the joy of forgiveness. So if you're wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's basking in the love and mercy of God for people like us. It's not walking around the city beating yourself up all day. It's basking in it. So here's a question I want you to to assess yourself as you go, especially if you're here and you're a Christian. When, When people ask you, how are you and God doing? All of you have the list of things you go in your brain, right? You think, hey, am I reading the Bible? Am I praying? Have I looked at pornography? Have I lusted? Have I cheated? Have I stolen? You have like the list of things. Let me give you another question to ask yourself to kind of assess where you are. Here's the question. How often and how quickly do you cry for mercy? How often and then how quickly do you cry for mercy? Listen, if you come to me and if I say, hey, when's the last time you cried for mercy to God? And you're like, it's been two whole years since I cried for mercy, following Jesus faithfully for two years now. I think, liar. Honestly, if you told me that, I would not be impressed. I would think you're way further from God than you realize. Because when you see the Bible, when anyone sees God for who, for who God is, no one ever goes, yeah, I feel pretty good about myself, right? When you see God for who he is, everyone collapses and say, woe is me, God's too holy. So if you're not aware of your sin, it doesn't mean you're not sinning, it just means you're not aware of it. So one of the things you can ask is, how often am I confessing sin and crying out for mercy to God? Here's what I found. The more mature people do it more often. It doesn't mean that they're, they're keeping sinning all the same ways. There, there are sins in my life that God has set me free from that I never thought it would be possible. There's also sins in my life that I thought I'd be done with 10 years ago. You've been there? There's sins I thought, are you serious? I'm still struggling with this? So the question is not, as a mature Christian, are you sinning or not? The question is, when you recognize it, how quickly do you go to him? How often and then how quickly do you run to him when you recognize it? That's how I've, this is my struggle. I'll recognize sin, but it's a while before I cry for mercy. I start working really hard and making myself prove to God. I don't, even realize I'm, I don't even realize I'm doing it, but I'm trying to prove to God that he should love me. How quickly, how often do you cry for mercy? Because I want you to see, listen how Paul, we're almost done, how Paul views himself as a, this is Paul towards the, towards the end of his life. He's about to die soon, he's writing to Timothy. Listen how Paul views himself. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, look how he views himself, of whom I am foremost. This is the apostle Paul. You would love to have his spiritual life and consistency and discipline, and devotion, and he sees people broken far from God, and he goes, I'm at the worst of them. Because he gets God's grace. That's the heart of the kingdom of God. This is the new people that he's building. Listen, we're not naive to sin, we're not complicit to sin in the society around us, but we know even the most awful sin that I see, I'm just as tainted by the seeds of that sin still in my heart. So you know what you do? You beg God for mercy for everybody. Even if this person, even if this situation, there needs to be consequences to their sin, so be it. But God, I want mercy for me and for them. Because when it comes to God, I know I need to be humble because I need mercy. 
not self-righteous in my comparison to other people. That's what binds us as a people together. It's not our ethnicity, it's not our childhood, it's not our language, not our tribe, it's not our nation. What binds us together is that all of us have collectively experienced mercy. We've all said, I don't know your background and you don't know mine, but we both know without Jesus, I got nothing. That's what binds us together. So if you're here and you're a Christian, oh, would you soak that up? Would you quit thinking and wondering, where am I at with God? You don't have to question it. When you ask for mercy, you go home justified today. You don't need to come to church again at the 11. You just go home, go eat brunch. I would love to go to brunch with you. I'd preach the 11 after this, but I would go with you. You go to brunch justified. You go home justified. We need to be Christians who don't always think, when I fail, does he love me? You don't have to ask that question. When you cry out for mercy, it's always yes. Bask in that. That's who you are. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you you don't know what the life of a Christian is like, you may have seen really mopey Christians. They're just struggling. They're just struggling. We've all been there. right? I've gone through email stages, journaling a lot of stuff. I've been there. The last time I checked, he got out of the grave. And so I want you to know, if you're here and you're not a Christian, oh, you can have this. There, there, there is nothing like being in awe of the fact that I'm forgiven. I'm loved and I know how broken I am and I'm loved. Not because I keep being successful or disciplined, it's because Jesus keeps being faithful to me. So let's pray together, let's ask God for mercy and know you'll hear yes, let's pray together. Father, would you, before we move on, our minds drift about all the different things we wanna think about God, help us not to miss what you're doing right now. Help us not to miss the call you're giving to every person in this room that we can be loved by you. That we can cry for mercy right now because God, we wanna have the posture, even if the people around us have hurt us and affected us, when it comes to you, God, we know where we stand. We know what's true. So God, right now, would you have mercy for me? For God, for my immense amount of anxiety this week over silly things, I just didn't trust you. And God, I've been running from you all week trying to think that I'm strong and I'm not. God, have mercy on me. And God, for every person in this room, people I know, God, are hiding things from you. They haven't talked to you about it yet. They've thought about it. They've obsessed over it. They haven't talked to you yet. God, right now, help us cry out for mercy. God, forgive me for this. And God, for those in this room who maybe have never said that, even now, say, God, have mercy for this. Have mercy on me. Amen. So church, we're gonna do something the church has been doing together for 2,000 years.